This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook and at trevorjamesflutes.com. Hello and welcome this week to Talking Flutes Extra with me, Jean-Paul Wright. If you're watching this on YouTube, you will see in the right-hand corner or the right-hand side of the screen a certain individual that for many people on social media is a well-known character. He's actually a very annoying chap in that he can play everything. So whether I'm annoying, I'm like, I'm you're not supposed to come in yet, but anyway, if you haven't guessed by that little snippet of voice, ladies and gentlemen, a huge welcome this week to, he gave the game away, Josh Johnson. Hi, Josh. He's Hi, with, I didn't know this was going to be on YouTube. Uh, n- nor did I, but I'm sure we can put it on YouTube. <laughs> I would have trimmed my beard. <laughs> Josh, you're no longer in New York. For those who don't follow social media. I am no longer in New York, which is... um. I mean, it's a terrible secret, but yes, I am now in London. I, I have finally, I did the thing. I, I hopped the pond. So you gave up Broadway and you flew over the pond. Well, not, well, I mean, okay. I didn't, a, a certain global event has occurred <laughs> that sort of gave Broadway up for everyone. You may have heard. Yes, I do. You may be aware. There's a bit of a virus going around. Um, and unfortunately, the entire performing arts industry in New York City is gone. It's gone. The New York Philharmonic, Metropolitan Opera, the City Ballet, and all of Broadway are fully shut down until fall of 2021. So this entire 2021 season is wiped out. So it's it, it will be a year and a half of... of full shutdown before anything comes back. So I sort of, I sat in my apartment for four and a half months uh, and just thought, you know what? I could either spend my savings uh, continuing to stay in New York or I could spend them uh, in London, which I prefer to New York. Uh, and frankly, I, it's a little cheaper. I mean, London's expensive. Like, Everyone knows London's expensive. But the people who are horrified about how expensive London is have clearly not lived in New York. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not quite there. you know. And I do have to say also, and this is sort of horrible and opportunistic, but the pandemic has actually been really, I don't want to say blessing in disguise. It's been very good for rental prices if you're, if you're a renter in the market. You know what I mean? Like there are, there are bargains to be had. So Josh, I think everybody's confused. What instrument do you prefer to play? Because... On social media, sometimes you, you're playing clarinet, sometimes you're playing flute, sometimes you get the bassoon out, oboe, piccolo. And so then the, the other the day it was viola. It used to be whatever I'm getting paid the most to play, uh, but now that I'm not getting paid anything to play, um, the answer to that question is the flute, because it's the easiest thing to put together. <laughs> Three pieces, no reeds. What's not to love? <laughs> and anybody that knows Josh knows that he is the font of all knowledge when it comes to... The flute. And the font's not only... I think I think we can openly say you are a flute nerd, aren't you? Oh, God. There are some people that I know who rival me in terms of their obsession with the flute and their knowledge of the flute. Uh, David Houston is one. 
he's one of the two people who creates Levitt flutes with yeah. Lev Levitt, but he worked at Owl for years and years and years. And he is a huge flute geek. Because um, we sort of have different areas of specialty, right? Like like my my sort of area of like uber nerdiness is materials and Japanese flutes. Uh, one Japanese flute maker in particular. And David tends to be, he, is, he knows literally everything about anything Haynes and Powell have ever done. So really, there's only Brandon missing from that wonderful um, amalgamation of brands, yeah, isn't there? He's, he's pretty, Lev, Lev worked at Brandon for a long time. And speaking of Brandon, um, the, other, the other person that I would say rivals me in the world in terms of being a flute nerd is Joshua from Brandon. <laughs> yeah. Also, Josh. Yeah. Josh Carter. Josh Carter is the one who gave me this vintage Sankyo catalog. Really? He gave me at NFA two years ago, uh, maybe three now. He said he was cleaning out a filing cabinet of old sheet music and stuff and found it and set it aside to bring to me at NFA. Oh. So that should just tell you how much I am associated with this particular brand in the minds of people. <laughs> like people, people see Sankyo, and I think most of them think that guy. They do, but they. The thing is, you can talk about any brand. The thing oh, is with yeah. Sankyo, and you know I've had a Sankyo flute. They are a special instrument. They're a special company, they and they they do things that very few others, if any, do. So, Josh, talk about your favorite Sankyo, the one that you, if you could afford any flute in the world, what would it be? That is sort of a two-pronged question. So, if I could afford any flute in the world, and we're not talking about having one custom made for me. No, we're not, no. If I could, just, if I could like, have, like, DHL overnight a flute to me, mm-hmm. um, it would be the Platinum Sankyo. Sankyo, in 1995, Sankyo made their first and last platinum flute which is actually in the Sankyo catalog from the 90s because they had sort of planned to produce it and then they made it and they were like just kidding absolutely not because i'm sure you know platinum is very hard to work with but so they said that if we're going to make a platinum flute we are going to make the most special platinum flute that has ever been made because it was a really big deal for Sankyo to do this experiment which is a sidebar is one of the things i love about them so much is they love to experiment and so the platinum flute was an experiment because the founders of Sankyo had a really clear vision about the flute and what they wanted the flute to sound like. And none of them thought that platinum would make a good flute. They didn't like the sound of platinum. But they wanted to see, uh, you know, after about 25, almost 30 years of being in business, what a platinum Sankyo would sound like. So they made it and they made a really special flute. So it is, it's an inline with seafoot, which at the time was all you saw in Japan. Mm-hmm. Everyone played an inline open hole seafoot flute, which in the UK also is still not terribly uncommon to see. It's a, it's, a, it's a popular combo. So it is a platinum body, platinum head joint, the lip plate riser and crown are also platinum. The tone holes are platinum and the keys, ribs, uh, the mechanism, the whole mechanism, and the rings are solid 18 karat gold. And to my knowledge, it is the only platinum flute ever made by any company ever that was made with an 18 karat gold mechanism. And then, of course, it's fully hand engraved, the keys and the lip and the rings and the crown. Have you played it? No, 
it is it haunts my dreams. It is the number one goal in my life to get my hands on the Platinum Song Hill. I want to play it so desperately. And a huge part of the reason I'm so heartbroken about NFA being canceled this year because of COVID is that it was going to be brought to America for me to play. It was going to be hand carried from Japan by by my friends at Sankyo in their little suitcase. And I was going to get to play it after 15 plus years of searching for it and like trying to gather information and photos. I was finally going to get to play it. And then NFA was canceled. So platinum with 18K, with your knowledge of playing lots of different metals of flute, if you had a platinum tube with say 9K or 14K or 18K, what's the subtleties of the sound that you would feel with with golds the higher carat the gold the denser it is right and so i i don't generally believe that you know the keys affect the sound of the instrument terribly but when you're adding that much mass to a flute like it's you know it's going to change things a little bit and so with the 18k mechanism first of all it would be incredibly heavy but i would imagine that all of that weight of the golds would would sort of round out the, the top of the sound I, you know the 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 because platinum right people think of platinum as being sort of cold sounding yeah. and very penetrating and i think that having that that mass of gold sitting on the body and the the gold rings you know where the where all the joints are um would warm it up a little bit and i think it would sort of give it kind of a nice a nice glow to the sound whereas i think 14 and lower I don't think that there's quite enough density to sort of overpower the natural sound of platinum. Although, you know, the other thing to consider is I have never played this flute. They've never made another one. I don't know anyone who has played this flute. And every other platinum flute I've ever played has had either gold or silver tone holes and a gold lip and riser or silver lip and riser, which sort of, you know, affects everything about the sound. So this would be the only platinum flute I will have ever played in my life that has a solid platinum lip plate and riser and tone holes. So I sort of, I don't know what it would sound like. And, you know, Sankyo, one of the things that's so special about Sankyo is there really is a sound concept that they have. And so I would imagine it would sound like a Sankyo, maybe, maybe sort of louder and maybe a little um, penetrating. And because Sankyo flutes tend to be sort of brilliant, but warm. You know what I mean? So I think it would just amplify all of that. I don't know. I honestly, I, I literally lay awake at night sometimes wondering what this flute would sound like. So you, th- you think that the 18K, it would just temper the power of the... Uh, I think so. I think it, yeah, I think it would sort of rein in the platinumness of the platinum a little bit. It would refine it, I think. So tell me about Sankyo. Tell me about the history of Sankyo and why they are so special. So Sankyo was founded by three people in the 60s. So we just had our 52nd anniversary. So it was 60, yeah, no, 60, 68, I think. Sometime in the late 60s. And it was founded by three flute players who had all worked for other Japanese flute makers who all had this, this real passion for experimenting and they sort of weren't given free reign to, to do the kind of things they wanted to do at the companies they worked at. And all three of them also, and this is very important to sort of the, the core of what Sankyo is, is that they played themselves, they're all flutists, on vintage French flutes. I believe two of them played on Louis Lanz. So their whole thing was like, we would like to create a flute brand that has all of that color. Cause you know, it, and you're English, right? So the UK is mad for Louis Lanz. I mean, there were people in major chairs here in the UK playing Louis Lanz until just a few years ago. 
And so they wanted a modern flute with that kind of character, the color, all the, all those beautiful tone colors that you get from those old French flutes, but with an improved scale and with the power to cut through a modern sized orchestra at modern pitch, you know, because I think at the time, I mean, orchestras in, in Tokyo, I know Tokyo was already at like 445 or something. And, you know, the higher the general pitch of the orchestra, sort of the more brilliant the sound tends to be. And so they said, we want to make a flute that will, that will sound like our flutes that we personally play, but you could use right now in the orchestra. And so that's what they did. They quit their, their respective jobs and they formed Sankyo, which is sort of a Japanese compound word, Sankyo, which means roughly three sounds. Because San is the Japanese word for three, right? Ichi, Nisan, like the car, Nisan, two, three. So Sankyo. And Kyo is sort of the translation of this character, which is actually part of the Sankyo logo. Uh, Hibiki is the character, which means sound. They created the brand flutes that represented sort of the three of them coming together to make one flute. So that's how it started. What I found interesting when I visit, visited the Senkyo factory, Kareki, 15 years ago, is they make every single thing in-house. Nothing is bought in from ex- outside. Everything they make themselves. Yeah, springs and pads included, they make themselves in-house. Every single piece of a Senkyo flute is made by people in the Senkyo workshop. You know, they're not importing Pizzoni pads or anything. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I'm not. Pizzoni's great, but they, so I mean, the, 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 the concept of what they want is so strong that they felt that they needed to control every single aspect of the production process in order to ensure that whatever the end result was, there were no variables that they could blame anything on or they could go wrong. Every single part of a Sankyo flute is made by Sankyo. So it's, it's sort of, you know, top to bottom, start to finish, it's their product. And I think that's super cool. And what a lot of people, if they've tried a Sankyo flute, they will probably have tried one, I say, with the old sort of NRS1 style head joint, for example, which is all power. And people, and people, all power. it is all power. But if you veer away from an NRS1 cut or even an RS1, you veer into the realms of beauty where you can control, you can you can find certain tonal colours that are very difficult to find on other brands. And I think that is the area that uh, I think probably Sankyo over in the Western Europe, it hasn't been explored as much. And people still think of Sankyo as a really big sound, a beautifully made, probably one of the best made out there. But I don't think the, the head joints have been explored enough because you can get this beautiful head. Absolutely. And so the NRS1 still exists, um, except now it's called the RT1. Mm-hmm. And the RT is the most popular Sankyo head joint cut, at least in, in the North American market, you know, which is sort of the market that I'm most familiar with. Yep. Uh, because it is so powerful and the second you pick up a Sankyo flute with an RT head joint on it you feel like you could do anything and you just feel like you could like break the world with a low B you know what I mean but I, you know I play on large I play in large E3 which has a slightly lower riser and I the power is always there but once you get to know it and you do it's a process you can get all of those colors and sort of things out of it, but it's not immediate. There are other head joint cuts, the ST, which is, stands for standard. All of these cuts, by the way, mean something. RT means round top. ST is standard, the first letter is standard. And then the FT means flat top, and it is a completely flat lip plate with a very sharp front bevel. So that one has incredible response, and it's a slightly smaller hole than the other two head joint cuts. And so you, you get this really sweet, colorful, colorful sound 
with an instant response, but you still can push it really hard. But yeah, there's the between the three head joint cuts, and they're all available with three different riser heights, except for the FT, which only comes in one standard. It's like a LaFan. There's that's you get it and that's it. But so so there are seven different possible head joint styles that you can get in any combination of the materials that Sampio offers, which is three different silvers, four different golds, and they will still do platinum risers. So, I mean, you end up with, I mean, basically millions of combinations of sounds that you can get out of these head joints. Um, but I do, I do think that most people think of Sampio and they think of the RT or the NS1, which began its existence as the original high wave head joint, which you might remember from uh, the 70s yeah. and the 80s. Yeah. The doublers loved it. The jazz guys loved it. Because the thing about, you know, that wave, which still exists on the RT, but it's sort of rounded out, is that it really helps you focus way more of your air. So less air is wasted. And so you get a cleaner, bigger sound. And so it just sort of, it makes you sound better. You know what I mean? Like it makes you sort of sound more like, you know what you're doing. And it, it's an instant kind of feedback. So you play it and you think, oh my God. Do you think they've they've overcomplicated it in that there are so many different options because... Yes. I, well, I, I mean, I, you know me, I, I, the more the better, but... I think for most people, there are already so many options in the flute world. You know, I mean, if you sat down and really thought about it, you could probably come up with 30 flute brands off the top of your head. So having these, you know, seven different head drink cuts is, is a lot. It's also a lot for uh, a dealer to keep in stock all the time. You know, in the in the U.S. market, the distributor there has sort of narrowed it down to the, the best sellers. So you get the RT1, the ST2, uh, and the FT. And those are the options. And they they sort of work for most people, uh, but if you hunt, you can find you can find the other riser heights. I play an RT three, which has the lowest riser of the RT. So the the higher the number, the the, the shorter the riser is. So the closer the lip plate is to the tube. And so I, I find that for me that gives the perfect balance of power because I'm a, I'm a big big player. I, I move a lot of air, so I don't really need help being loud. I'm very barrel chested, and my lungs are this big. What I enjoy about the RT, the it, it really gives you a lot of options for places to aim your air, and so you can you can get these incredibly pianissimo third octave notes, and you can just float a high A out, barely audible, over a whole orchestra, which is it's and the head joint, the geometry of the head joint helps you do that which is very cool. And then you can turn around and like blast out a low D, you know, and it responds pretty well to you. Like it's, it's a great uh, Leonore number one head joint. It's a great Midsummer Night's Dream head joint for anyone but me because I'm lazy and don't practice enough. And I, 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 you know, you know that I've owned and played a million other things and I like all of them, but nothing is as comfortable to me immediately as a Sankyo RT head joint. I can remember Marion saying at a masterclass in Paris many, many years ago. He was on a 24K, wasn't he? So he was on, Alain played an all 18-karat oh. gold body with a 24-karat gold NRS1 head joint. Oh, got you. I remember him saying that the thing was, un- unusually, a lot of people look for their head, they, when, they, when they look at a new flute, they'll look at it and they'll concentrate on the head joint, which is the engine room. But for him, being right. French... It was the feel and it was the, the, the craftsmanship and the beauty in the body. And then what he then looked at with Sankyo was the design of the head joint to suit him. So he was actually saying he did it the opposite way. He looked at the body, which he says that people sometimes ignore because of the head joint importance. And then Sankyo created that head joint for him. Yes, that is correct. So really, if if people are on this search as... I think a lot of people, a lot of flute players are, they're on this search for the 
the one, the one to fall in love with. And they think they found it, and then they'll go to a flute convention and try something else, and they'll go, oh. So the thing with Sankyo is don't give up with Sankyo if the head joint cut that is on that flute is not the one that you like. There is something that will work for you because the three different basic cuts are very different from each other. And so if you, you know, I know people that hate the RT head joint. They really don't like it. But the second they put an FT on it, they absolutely fall in love with it. And and they realize that it's just a better, you know, head joint cut. It doesn't mean the flute is bad. It means that they weren't compatible with that particular head joint. You know what I mean? Like if you find a pair of boots that you really fall in love with the look of, but you know, the pair that's out on display isn't your size. You just ask them to go find that shoe in your size. You know what I mean? And that's kind of what these different head joint cuts are. If you if you love the way the flute feels, just try different head joints until you find one that that makes you feel comfortable. And you know, because ultimately the goal of these these tubes with holes in them, right, is to get the sound that you hear in your head out into the world. So all you need to do is find the flute that makes it easiest for you to do that, which is why there is no answer to what's the best flute. It's whatever makes it easiest for you to get what's inside your head out into other people's ears. So, Josh, you've played every metal and wood. The differences from the, the differences between them all. Can you whiz through from, say, wood through to the different silvers? The biggest thing about wood that sets it apart from all the other materials used in flute making is that wood changes. You know, if it's a really hot, humid day, your flute is not going to feel, sound, or act the same way it does on a dry, cold day in December. You know, because wood was a living thing and it expands and it contracts. And, you know, I think a lot of people forget that wood grain is what you're seeing of what's left of the sort of the blood vessels of the tree, right? Like the little things that carried the sap through the tree. So there, your flute is full of holes and tubes. There are tiny little mm-hmm. microscopic holes all throughout the inside of your flute. And these holes expand and contract depending on how warm or cold or humid or dry the air is. So the thing when you play wood flute is that you have to sort of commit yourself to quickly relearning your instrument every time the weather changes, you know, and people who play a lot of piccolo know this already, you know, your piccolo, especially if you play rosewood or cocos wood or cocobolo or any of these non-grenadilla woods that aren't as heavy and dense, they change a lot from day to day. And so, you know, that, that makes your warm up very important because that 10 minutes will tell you how you need to play your flute today. And sometimes they, it can move so much that keys will bind, which is why you will very frequently find that on wood flutes, the key work does not feel as tight. And I'm just going to put this out there in the world. This makes me absolutely psychotic. And I'm so sorry that I'm, I'm being this violent, but it makes me want to punch people directly in the face. The first thing people do at a flute convention when they pick up a flute almost always is wiggle the keys from side yeah. to side. Stop doing that. Stop it. Oh, God, I hate it. You know who else hates it? Flute makers. Don't do that. And so with wood flutes, when you do that, the key will move a little bit because you have to have that tiny amount of space mm-hmm. between the rod and the post to account for the fact that the wood is going to make the post go like that. And so if you build the flute so it fits perfectly against the post, great. The second it's humid, your keys aren't moving. And then what a lot of people will do is they'll take it to a repair person and the repair person will grind down the edge of the rod a little bit 
which it'll work that day, but then when it's dry again, all of a sudden your keys are flopping all over the place and they're not sealing anymore. So, you know, you have to build this tolerance into wood because wood breathes, it moves. You know, it's not alive anymore, but it, it doesn't really know that. And, you know, a piece of wood that has been cut down and milled and turned into something else still wants to be a tree. You know, it doesn't, your piccolo doesn't want to be a piccolo. That piece of wood really would like to be a tree again. And so you, you just have to keep that in mind. But, you know, the payoff, of course, is that there is nothing like the colors that you can get out of a wood flute. No piccolo player would ever question that, you know, they would prefer to play on a wood piccolo. Even though that there are wonderfully made mm-hmm. solid silver and gold piccolos in the world, but everyone thinks, oh, a good piccolo has to be wood. Well, why? Well, they're they're sweeter and they're mellower. Okay, so why why not play wood flute then? You know, because the wood flutes also have beautiful mellow sweetness. They blend incredibly well, which is why there are people in the world who use wood all the time. They don't yeah. play anything but wood. Joshua Smith, who's the principal flutist in the Cleveland Orchestra, plays wood um, almost all the time. He does occasionally play a, a gold Powell, but he puts a wood head joint on it. Herman Van Kogel, who is the principal flutist in, I think it is Frankfurt. You should know this. He's a Sankyo artist, but he. He plays a wood a wood sankyo all the time. Never plays anything else but a wood sankyo. Um, there's a lot of people who you know who play wood, or they'll have a wood flute. Like Emily Bynan, right? Mm-hmm. In the Concert Cabal has a wood flute that she uses for certain rap. You know, for like certain sort of like Mozart and Haydn, and you know, even some early Brahms. Like a wood flute is exactly the sound that you need because it blends with the strings and the other woodwinds in a way that metal will never do. No, I've got you on that. And, you know, we're coming around to Sankyo again because they make an absolutely beautiful wooden flute. They absolutely do. gorgeous. It is it is stunning. And you will you will find that most Sankyo artists, sort of the top Sankyo artists um, in particular, will have a wood Sankyo in their collection, even if they play on a, a 14K or a 24K. Um, they'll have a wood flute. You know, Julien Bodamont, principal flutist of the Los Angeles Philharmonic for a couple of years, primarily plays an all 14 karat Sankyo, but he also has a, a wood Sankyo. I didn't know that. With gold keys. Yeah, he, he busts it out every once in a while. They're just, they're wonderful. And very recently, they have started experimenting with some other woods. I was fortunate enough to play uh, the Mopani prototype last year, which was incredible, absolutely stunning. They also made one in pink ivory, which I have not oh. yet, unfortunately, got to play. And one in a wood called black shikate, which I never played an instrument made of. Because, you know, the different woods, woods, much like different silvers and different golds, different species of wood have different densities. And density is everything when it comes to building a musical instrument in, in terms of the final sound, right? So, like, you know, a, an 18-carat gold flute is going to sound very different from a 9-carat gold flute because the wall of the flute is so much denser. And that's part of what makes the sound of old Louis Lots, for example, so special is that over that 100 and whatever, 30 years, the silver has hardened and it's, it's gotten denser and it is a harder, denser material, which will sound different than a brand new sterling silver flute fresh off the table and there's a thing about the molecules moving isn't there so if you give your flute to someone for two weeks when it comes back it doesn't quite play the same does it right it's it's there's sort of you know there is there is something to uh to the thought that you sort of put a little bit of your own spirit into an instrument when you play it because it does vibrate right i mean these, these things vibrate and if you vibrate something long enough it will eventually cause a molecular structural change in the material you know if you i mean on a very macro level if you take sort of a 
one of those little Zen gardens, a little tray of sand, you know, and you sort of rake a very specific pattern in it and then you very gently vibrate it. It's going to change. It's going to go away, especially with wood. My God, you know, I, I loaned several years ago, I loaned my piccolo to a friend for it was a couple of months because my, my primary job then was as a bassoonist and I wasn't playing piccolo at all. And it came back and I was like, did you, did you sell it and buy a new one? Like, what is this instrument? It doesn't, you know, and it took me sort of another few weeks to get it back to, to responding exactly the way I wanted it to, because he made it respond the way he wanted it to, you know, it's what he played it in is what we call it, called playing it in yeah, what, uh, or what, breaking it in. It's the same thing. What is the breaking it in playing in process for a wooden instrument? Because obviously it's not a metal. So what is it that you right. have to do? Well, so the, the standard for all wood instruments, you know, clarinets, oboes, flutes, piccolos, um, bassoons, when you get it, you know, you're supposed to sort of play it for five minutes and then set it down and then do that for a few days and then play it for 10 minutes. Here's the thing. By the time that piece of grenadilla wood has been turned into a flute, it's anywhere from 10 to 60 years old. It's aged. It's settled. You know what I mean? Like, and if the maker is good between every step of that process, drilling the bore and then drilling the tunnels, they will have let that wood sit for months to settle back down because obviously drilling a hole through something is quite traumatic, as you know from recent experience. Yeah. And it's, it's <laughs> my knees. Right? You know, like you can't you can't drill all these holes in a piece of wood called a clarinet and then give it to someone to play. Of course it will explode if you take the time to let everything settle back down, you know, and you buy a new wood flute and you play a concert on it that night, it is not going to crack down the middle. It's a good, it's breaking something in. I think it's more of a psychological comfort for us because we think, well, we've done it the right way. And so it's not going to crack because we're so scared of cracks, right? Like cracks are almost always fixable. You crack it, you pin it. It's fine. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying don't break your instrument in because it does sort of take time for the instrument to become your instrument. But I also, I think that playing it for only five minutes a day for a week and then 10 minutes a day for another week, that's how frustrating is that to get this beautiful new instrument and then you can only play it for five minutes a day. I think it's good to have a backup instrument so that when you get a new wooden instrument, you can sort of gradually work up to playing six hours a day. I, I don't know that I would do that immediately, but I think that being terrified of a brand new instrument cracking if you play it for half an hour is a little, it's a little alarmist. But there is very much a a breaking in period where you learn how it responds and what it does. And, you know, not to sort of anthropomorphize it, but it gets to know you, you know, so because it's a relationship, right? It's, yeah. You know, especially if you play for a living. I mean, this inanimate object, it's not only the way that you pay your rent and buy your food, but it also, you know, musicians, we're sort of creatures of, of emotion and passion and, and it becomes sort of a, an emotional relationship that you have with this instrument. So, of, you know, you wouldn't want to play a date with someone and then marry them that day. You have to get to know each other. And it's exactly the same way with a new instrument, but particularly a new wooden instrument, because that is an organic material. And you do need to, you need to learn each other and, and you need to learn how to play that flute. I like that analogy. You wouldn't go on a blind date with someone and marry them that day. But don't you find right. that when people go and play flutes, try flutes to upgrade, they're in essence doing that, aren't they? They're not giving them enough themselves enough time to get yeah. to know it. Which is why if you go to NFA and you pick up a flute and you fall in love with it and you buy it, you're an idiot. <laughs> Unless you, there are people, and I've done this, you know, you are so set on this one specific instrument and 
you're going to make it work no matter what, because you've waited your whole life for this one instrument or whatever this, you know, say, you know, you really want a 19.5 karat gold Powell and you are not going to wait for one to be made. And there's only one on the table. You're going to buy it. It doesn't, you'll figure it out. You know what I mean? But really that's why literally every flute dealer on earth offers you a trial period. You need the trial period. And, you know, when you and I talked a couple years ago and we talked about sort of picking out a new flute, you need to know what your shortcomings are on your current instrument. Like, what what do you wish your flute was better at? And you're not going to know that when you pick it up with five other people standing within three feet of you all playing high Cs. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's just sort of perfect advice, really. Get to know the instrument and don't be pushed into it. Right. Don't ever let anyone say, no, you have to buy this. If, you know, it's not... It's not a car. It's not an apartment. It's a, it's a really personal, personal thing. You know, I have, I am so in love with my current flute and I've had it now for, it'll be two years in February and I'm still learning things about it and sort of learning things that I can do with it, you know? And so it, it takes time. You can't make that decision at a convention or, you know, popping into your music and arts on a Friday afternoon. You know, you have to spend some time with it. Let's briefly talk about your flute, because this is we're talking. I'm talking to Josh Johnson here. It wouldn't be any old flute, would it, Josh? <laughs> <laughs> My flute has sort of it's sort of become a little famous, hasn't it? It has My become flute. very I mean, famous. You know, it's not quite as famous as Sasha Lizzo's flute. So I play a very special flute. I play a Sanfio artist model, which is what we call the 401 in North America, which is all sterling silver, solid silver with drawn tone holes. And my flute has a low A foot joint. <laughs> In addition to the low A foot joint, my flute also has the C-sharp trill key, uh, which makes it the only low A flute with a C-sharp trill key in the world. So Sankyo has made six of them, low A flutes, but mine's the only one that has the extra C-sharp trill. You will occasionally see on social media other a foot Sankyo flutes. The A foot is not the unique part. It's the A foot in combination with the C sharp trill that makes my flute the only one. But there are actually several um, low A flutes in the world. Sankyo has made several. Mateki, who I, I, I believe is uh, very close to your heart. It is, yes. That's what's in your house right now, sir. Yes. They have made several low A flutes. Michel Parminon in France has made the only gold A foot flute in the world. He made a 14 karat A foot. Uh, and Powell, believe it or not, has made two A-foot flutes. So they are up. And then, of course, Ihara, who sort of became another Japanese maker. You know, they made the G-foot flute. Mm. Sometimes you see on YouTube. Um, they've also done a couple of A-foot instruments. Um, they're a cool company. They, they're super experimental. And I love that about them. And they're really nice people. And they make good flutes. But even back in the early 20th century, in like 1912 or 1915-ish, Buffet Crampon made a low A flute. It's not unprecedented, but mine is special because it's got the C-sharp trophy and it's the only one. So it's yours, but you're just keeping it warm for me, aren't you? I have first I, dibs. I, I do recall that you're very fond of it. You're very, very fond of it. Um, and it likes you too. You know, I did, it was a year or so. Yeah, no, maybe it's a beaut. Ago. No, it was a year ago. Um, I got a little, I got a cute little video of you playing it. Yeah. put it on my Instagram. It did quite well. Because I think maybe a lot of people don't know that you are a very very good flutist yourself i think people sort of think of you as the the red cup funny guy but you're you're a very serious flute player i i make i make the odd noise 
and you also, you played a Sankyo flute for a very long time. I did. I lost it on the train. I left it on the yes, train. I still can't get over that. No. I, would, I would be so heartbroken. But you replaced it with another very well-made Japanese flute. And you have a very special head joint, speaking of materials. You play a nine-carat white gold Lafan. I do. I do, yes. 35 years old. Nine-carat white gold is one of the rarest alloys in the flute-making world. And the only people who have done 9K white are the Germans. Lafan has done it, and Bernard Homig has done nine-carat white gold. And I believe Menard has as well. But yeah, nine-carat white gold seems it's a very, very German thing. And... I don't know. There's probably a handful of them in the world. Wow. So it's for you. That's cool. You know, I have, I have a head joint, which you've seen. You do. Um, that is made of 18 karat white gold. And as far as I know, it is one of two on the planet by the, the man who made it, David Williams. And I have heard that LaFan has also made at least one or two 18 karat white gold head joints. It doesn't sound right, does it? 18 karat white gold. Because, you know, we think of white gold as being 14. Yeah. It's all, and it's almost, I mean, 95% of the time it's 14. But you have a 9K white and I have an 18K white. How funny is that? It just makes you posher than me. We should put them together. So we should, yeah. we should do a little, a little weird white gold unique photo shoot. Yeah, do it, do it, do it. I really, I would love to try it. And I would love for you to play. I know you saw you didn't play the Williams, but the, the 18 karat white gold Williams is very cool. So your, your 9 karat white gold, is it all white gold? Or do you have like a 14K lip and riser or is it all nine carat white? It's, well, that's the thing. I actually didn't know it was nine carat. When I bought it, 20, my, mm. my grandma bought it for me 25 years ago. The, the tenon was quite dirty. And it was only when David, our mm-hmm. technical director, was cleaning the, the head joint a couple of years later. Because I quite like head joints to go a funny color. He said, do you know what's written on here? Uh, I went, no. He said, nine CT. I said, oh, I thought it was silver. <laughs> so I'm assuming it's the tube. <laughs> And there's definitely a rose gold riser. Okay. But I don't know about the lip plate. No. So what is the lip? Does the lip look different than the, than the tube? Do you know, I think it does. I think it looks slightly different, yes. If, if something new comes up, you're sort of the go-to guy because you'll have an initial thought process on whether technically it could work, but, and, but also right. practically where it would possibly fit. Right. Because of your experience yeah, working with everything. Um, I just love the flute so much. I think it's such a cool object, right? Because flutes themselves are works of art, right? Like as yeah. we've been discussing, you can craft these things out of solid platinum and carat gold. You know what I mean? So they're 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 precious, literally precious metal art objects that are also highly functional. It's a tool, right? But you know, you're not going to find a whole lot of, of wrenches and hammers that are made of platinum out there. <laughs> so it's, it's, I just think it's very cool that this tool that we use to create art is itself the product of an artistic process because flute making is absolutely an artisanal thing. You know what I mean? It's people apprentice for years. People spend their whole lives working on this craft, which is just to make a tool that other artists use to create a different kind of art. So I just think something about that is really, really special to me. And it, it never, I keep waiting for the day when I'm over it, when I don't care anymore, because it's been, you know, 25 years now that I've been obsessed with it. And every day I think it's just as exciting that these Silly little sideways blowing tubes are are just so complicated, but also so special. They can be so special. And the wonderful thing about you, yes, you have an obsession and a, a deep passion for Sankyo, but it doesn't stop you going around all the other makers and dipping that you dipping your toes into understanding what they're doing and appreciating the gifts of 
flute making? Well, because I, I, you know, I think, yes, I, Sankyo flutes are my favorite flutes in the world. Everyone knows that. I will never pretend that they're not. But I do think that, of course, we have to respect everyone's craftsmanship. And there are people who are doing really cool things, really, really cool things. There are things that Sankyo doesn't do that other makers do, you know, and it's cool to experience these things. And I mean, my favorite thing in the world is when, you know, a maker, especially like a smaller maker at NFA says, you know, we have something new on the table that we've never told anybody yet. It's the first one. You want to try it? Like that to me is that that's, that's a thousand Christmases in one moment. You know what I mean? And it happens every year. There's always someone that says, Hey, come here. I want you to try something. We just made this and we, we haven't published anything about it. It's because give, uh, give them a couple of seconds and it's up on social media. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I do actually always ask because I know that sometimes, you know, things are still a work in process and, okay. and, and, you know, they don't necessarily want people to know, but gold alloys, one of which is sort of iconic in, in, in the Sankyo universe, which was the five carat gold. Yeah, absolutely. Know, that was discontinued. Um, and they also did a nine carat gold, which was discontinued and replaced with the 10 carat gold. Mm-hmm. So over the course of, of their life, they had made flutes in five carat, nine carat, 10 carat, 14 carat, um, 14 carat white, 18 carat, and 24 carat gold. And they were the first flute maker in the world to do 24 karat gold. And it was because of Alain Marion. Um, they made him a 24 karat head joint, and he liked it so much that they made a, a 24 karat body after that. And now it's a, it's a permanent part of the catalog. We almost always have one at NFA, or every other year at least. And there's about 47 of them out there in the world now. And then other makers, all Japanese, followed suit with the 24 karat. And at one point there were four. Um, but Mateki has uh, sadly gone out of business. They don't yeah. exist anymore. So now there are only three makers in the entire world that do 24 karat gold flutes. Um, and the other two are the, the Japanese M&Ms, you know, uh, Muramatsu and Miyazawa yeah. do a 24K. But Sankyo was the first, you know, it's not my company. I didn't, but I just, everything they do just makes me so proud. And, and that's what, so that, and that's what's wonderful is that certainly in Europe, Sankyo is a work in progress because there is so many flutes that come over. And we are, I think certainly in the UK, we are, we've always, as you alluded to earlier saying up until a few years ago, uh, Louis Lott flutes were in, sat in principal chairs and we're we're right. beginning to move away from the reliance on the old flutes to new flutes, and right. Senkyo, it, it, it's a, a most beautiful, beautiful instrument, and it it just needs a slightly bit more exposure, and also I agree, and I'm I'm trying, God, I'm trying, <laughs> um, and you know, and it's it's funny to me, the UK should be the most welcoming market to Senkyo yeah. flutes because they were designed to remind you of a Louis Lott, you know, but there's another Japanese maker who also designed flutes that were supposed to remind you of a Louis Lott. And that is what sort of took hold as the replacement altists we're talking about. Yeah. Um, because, you know, most of the principal, these principal guys who were on their lot switched to an altist, you know, Garrett Davies, Michael Cox, Wibb, of course, Wibb was instrumental it in was, developing yeah. the altist. Yeah. And I would say also the reason why there is still very much an anti-gold bias in the UK yeah, absolutely. To embrace the gold. Yeah, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? There is never really been a thing about gold in the UK. Go across to Germany and it's everywhere. Go across to right. Holland and it's everywhere. It just seemed, and right. certainly Paris and France, yeah. there's something about UK. We're sort of a, we're a little island, <laughs> as you know now. <laughs> well, you know, and I, I think it's just because I think it's such a tradition thing. You know, I mean, as, as we said, people were still playing flutes in the 1800s until 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. So... 
you know, I, I think certainly switching from playing something sort of, you know, very buttoned up and, you know, a silver flute is unobtrusive, it's classic. The UK loves classic, right? So I, I think sort of switching to this very, what is thought of as being sort of an ostentatious show-off image, I think that's, I think that's going to take a while for people to sort of embrace the golds widely in the UK. But look, guys, James Galway, James Galway's Irish. Yeah. There's precedent here. And there's there's some there's some gold. I've seen some gold floating around. Stephen Clark, our dear friend Stephen he Clark, does. Yep. a huge devotee of the golds here in the UK. Uh, you know, it's out there. Um, but you know, if you are a silver person, there are silver uh, sterling silver, of course, is the standard for mm-hmm. silver. But there are so many silver alloys that are are being used. And an interesting thing about the altus flutes that have become so popular in England. Um, is that they're not sterling silver. Most of the people who switch to an Altus from their Louis Lots play on either the 1707 or the 1807 model, mm-hmm. which are made of very special high purity silver alloys. So the 1707 is 0.997 silver or 99.7% pure elemental silver that is powdered and pressed. And you know, there's a special process to make it into a tube. And then the 1807, the Altus Limited, is made of 943 silver. But so it's 94, it's an alloy that's 94.3% silver, but it's mixed with, I think, 16 other metals. So it's to emulate that time hardened, dense quality of the old Louis Lots. And so, you know, I know I'm, Michael Cox for sure played an 1807. I don't know if he switched to Haynes or not, but, you know, the 1807 is, and I mean, it really gets you close, but Sankyo makes a 99.7% pure silver flute. It's our 901 model, and it is. Hands down, without question, it is my favorite silver instrument in the world. It has so there's so much there is so much color that it's almost overwhelming at first. The sounds that you can get out of this flute, and every time someone picks it up at NFA, you can just see their eyes get really big and sort of start twirling around in their heads when they play it because it is not like your grandma's sterling silver flute, you know. And generally, the the higher the the elemental silver percentage in the alloy the denser and more colorful of a sound you're going to get sterling silver though sterling silver is a really it's a very polite metal you know it's a lovely metal mm-hmm. and sterling the word sterling comes from the pound sterling which was originally made of this material which isn't anymore but it is the word sterling silver refers to a very specific recipe anything that does not contain these amounts of these two ingredients isn't sterling silver and that's 92.5 percent silver or which is why it's always stamped 0.95 and 7.5% copper. Mm-hmm. That's it. Anything else, you do not have sterling silver. You have something else. There's an alloy called argentium, which I know Jonathan Landell uses, where a little bit of that copper is removed and replaced with a metal called germanium, right. which is really cool. It's a silvery colored metal, but the germanium molecules, anytime that, that there's a surface injury, a scratch, the germanium molecules will will move to fill in that scratch. And so it's kind of a self-polishing flute that's very scratch resistant. Wow. We but can... yeah, there's, there's so many silvers. There's coin silver, which Haynes uses, which is um, 900 silver or 90% silver. Makes it, so it's less silver than sterling. And then, you know, there's 943 silver. And um, a lot of the German makers uh, use 935 silver. There's 950 silver, 95% pure silver, which Stankio uses in the 701 and 801 models. And speaking of 9, and then there's 958 silver, which you, sir, could tell us a little bit about, because I believe some exciting things regarding 958 silver are happening with a certain British flute company you own. 
Yeah, we are changing all our head joints, all our step up silver head and silver tube head joints over to 958. Purely A, to be different, but B, when we did experiments with all the players, it's the one they fell in love with most. And you right. were the, you played the first one. If you remember, you were over in, mm-hmm. in, in the UK about 18 yep. months ago, and you played the first one. I remember, vividly. Uh, it was great. It was, I mean, that manufacturing process that you have combined with the material mm-hmm. makes a, a firecracker of a head joint. With a really, really well-made, in-tune instrument that has a beautiful sound. And I think to me, Trevor James flutes in that, in that sub 4,000 sort of intermediate student category have the best scale and the best sound of any of those less expensive flutes. I mean, you know, you know, David, our technical director, he'd love to be able to move the brand further up, but we sit where we sit and that we're quite proud. And what what we learn, we, we try and bring it down because not every, not everybody has a, a, parents or guardians or grandparents that can support them with an expensive flute but there is there is a reason why flutes are a lot more expensive than flutes that aren't that expensive and the big thing is design the time to make each one and the material yeah and that's it it's it's the craftsmanship that we've been talking about yes absolutely a lifetime of knowledge and skill that goes into hand making a flute and not everyone can afford that. You know, that's why people say, well, silver's only you know, $30 an ounce. Why is a silver Brannon $13,000? Well, you go make one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, you are paying for, you know, no one blinks a freaking eye at people who are buying $3,000 handbags that, you know, were individually hand sewn by tiny elves in the Himalayas on a full moon. Like, <laughs> Of course, you're just, you know, or any other luxury crafted goods. People say, well, of course, you're paying for the craftsmanship. Well, so with a musical instrument as well, you know, these these craftsmen are continuing a trade that has been around for centuries, and they deserve to make a living. You know, they have families to feed. They have rent to pay. You know, if you're, I don't think that you can be respectful of the amount of craftsmanship, say that, you know, that goes into an Aston Martin and then turn around and scoff at a flute being $45,000. And I think it's beautiful because it is so easy to machine make a flute. Yep. And the standard is very high, you know, mm-hmm. and that is sort of, there's a lot of flutes in that category of which I do believe that the Trevor James is the best, you know, and even on the Trevor James flutes, um, I do think it's worth people knowing that the head joints are still hand finished. Yes, absolutely. Here, mm. in the you know, and so there's still every single TJ flute does receive human attention. Yeah. You know, it's not, there's not a robot spitting them out in a factory and then they get boxed up and shipped. No. You know, they are checked. And I also think that maybe a lot of people don't know that Trevor James does make it a higher and still very affordable, but the recital one and two series, you know, mm-hmm. you make a soldered tone hole hand finished flute. Yeah, we do. Yeah. A full complement of options T sharp rollers, T sharp shell keys, sweaty engraving on the lip or the keys. Some really exciting plating options, which I think are, uh, you know, maybe we'll have another podcast to talk about that. But, you know, I'm sure if you follow, if you guys are following Trevor James Flutes on social media, you have seen these beautiful 14 karat gold plated virtuoso flutes with engraved keywork that are going out. You guys have also done some work with 22 karat gold plating, right? On some head joints. Yeah, we did. Is that the platers we use from Hatton Garden, the jewelry center in London? They didn't like to right. work anything less than 22 carat. 
we were experimenting with head joints in 22 karat and they do it very thick they do it be i think between eight and ten uh ums so quite a thick dense yeah. plating um but that's very so expensive it's, now it's, because i think a lot of people think oh gold plating we're going to wear through that but this plating is as thick as some manufacturers silver plating so yeah. it's you're not going to wear through it, and it's thick enough that I think it adds an appreciable enough amount of mass to the instrument that you can hear it. Yeah, you know, I think that there's there's a, a, a sort of a, a slight deepening of the sound of these gold plated flutes because I played a couple, um, and they're they're really lovely. They're very very well done. Yeah, they they sit where they sit, and it's if you can't if you you want to play gold and you just don't have the resources, you can play one of our gold plated gold bonded, and we do make the right. so we make the fuse ones where we use solid gold sheeting with silver sheeting, we put them together, right. but we make those for our artists. But I would say for right. people listening here, when you play your first fully handmade flute, something happens, and as Josh has has already alluded to it. There is a history, there's an expertise, there's a love in making this handmade item. And when something is handmade, it it doesn't come off a production line. Each one is made with love, care and attention. And when you pick that flute up at a convention or in a music store, you don't necessarily know what that love, care and attention has been. But boy, can you feel it. And that is why there is a big difference. Yeah, in both in both the the way it feels and sounds, but also the price. I mean, yeah. it's you know, it's it's not random, it's not arbitrary. They're really and it has it has very little to do with the market value of the metal in the yeah. instrument. Yes, of course, gold is more expensive because, as we discussed before we started, gold is at an all time high. You know, and so of course the people buying the gold are paying more for the gold, but also these materials are more difficult to work with. You have to be extremely careful. Um, and you also have to be very mindful of the scrap when you're working with yeah. gold and platinum. You know, so there are sort of collection uh, procedures that must be in place, you know, in order to to be able to reuse every last scrap of gold and remelt it and make more gold flutes out of it. So it's it's you know they're expensive for a reason, but it's worth it. You know, if if you play the flute, certainly if you play the flute for a living, mm-hmm. God, it's absolutely you must have a handmade flute. But even if you just really, really love the flute and, you know, say you're a lawyer or you're a doctor, but you love to play the flute, then it's worth getting and investing in a handmade flute. And these are investments, right? Because as we're all seeing with the gold market, precious metal appreciates. So they are, they really are investments and they're, if you bought a a gold flute in, you know, 1985, you made quite a good investment. (laughs) It'd be cheaper to melt it down, wouldn't it? Right. Well, that's the, um, you know, my 18 karat gold, my white gold head joints, the tube is 18K, but the riser is 22K, the lip is 14K, and the crown is solid 9K. Wow. So there's a lot of value in that, in that, in that instrument. Because <laughs> um, the price of gold this year has just gone bananas. It has, yeah. $2,000 an ounce now. It's crazy. Do you know, Josh, we could talk all day. You are just, we talk about one thing and then it just unlocks something and then you, you can quite have, we haven't, we haven't, we haven't spoken about the joy of springs. We haven't spoken about pads. We haven't spoken about mechanism preferences. Well, that's, this might have to be a series. Oh, well, well, yes. And I'll tell you what we'll do next time is we'll do it um, over a coffee in a coffee bar in London. I mean, ideally, it'd be in a wine bar, actually, or in a cocktail bar. Yeah. Yeah, wild up. And we can t- slowly get pickled as we're talking flutes. But I'm sure everybody would have, um, everyone would have heard your, not only your passion, but your your respect for w- this instrument, your respect for the makers, and 
your the sheer joy that just comes out when you talk about and not only for those that can afford but just the joy of playing the flute and your respect for the Senko company it's Senko flute making company um is is heard loud and clear over this side it shouldn't well, take that much longer for UK and European uh, flute players to sort of dip their toes more into the Senkyo flute world because they they are a very different flute and they are and I am always here to answer questions if anyone has questions about Senkyo flutes and once you know we sort of get this pandemic under control if anyone would like to try my yeah. very special foot Senkyo here in London let me know maybe we'll do a little you know head over to, to AFP and have a little Senkyo day do you know that's a great idea isn't it Thank you, Dana. Yeah, I'm all for it. Well, Josh Johnson, as always, you've been a pure joy, and I'm I, I'm still looking at well, your you. I'm still looking at the uh, your gorgeous apartment through this uh, video. I look forward to seeing you, Josh. You know, when this when we're allowed out of lockdown, um, we'll still probably yes. have to keep two meters away. Cheers. <laughs> all right well thank you for having me again it's been it's been two years um Crikey. No, over two years it was like october 2018 well, last time we did this yeah. the problem is is that we've done 140 now and if you're further down yeah. no one ever goes further down i think we might have to reissue sort of do um right sort of recirculates because the first one we did you were that was really interesting because you were talking about being a doubling musician and what it was like working in yeah. new york well, that was also i was also uh fresh off an early morning transatlantic flight and then lunch with two gin and tonics <laughs> we had lunch before we did the podcast in the conference room at, at headquarters yeah so i was i was i was not only tired but pickled slightly <laughs> <laughs> uh but you're fun whether you're pickled or not so um coffee coffee in this cup today guys just uh -huh. coffee oh josh you've been really you've been really kind taking up the time thank you very much thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your evening and thank you all for listening this week to our Talking Flutes Extra with Josh Johnson. If you've got any questions for either me or Josh on anything flute-related, if it's anything flute-related, it'll have to go to Josh, then please feel free to email us at flutepodcasts at gmail.com or you can either go through to Josh directly on social media at... Come on, Josh. Uh, on Instagram, is probably the best way. Josh J N Y C on Instagram. Just send me a DM. I'm, I always respond. He does. He always uh, responds. Or Josh Johnson Woodwinds at Gmail. Just reach out to him. He is very enthusiastic, as you know, and he always answers. <laughs> and well, wishing you a great week ahead. And may your top C, or in Josh's case, low A, be especially in tune. Bye bye, everybody. <laughs> bye. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.